Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no fluff actionable marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you will learn how to personalize when you cannot personalize. Uh, very mysterious. My guest today is the founder at Strategist Marketing. She empowers brands to provide exceptional digital experiences that meet real consumer needs. She's been a speaker at several digital marketing conferences, including the Digital Summit, SMX, uh, HeroConf. She's been mentoring marketing professionals, volunteering in the community, teaching uh, digital marketing courses at Towson University. So she knows a lot about digital marketing. And that's why I'm super happy to have Ashley Plack on the podcast. Welcome aboard. Thank you so much, Louis. All right, so let's dive in straight away into, into the problem we are facing. There seems to be a lot of talk about personalization nowadays. You know, you can personalize the web experience, you can personalize your emails, you can personalize everything. Personally, I've yet to see a company doing it properly. I've yet to see a company nailing personalization to the point that you feel that your experience with them is, is kind of one-on-one. I think it's incredibly difficult to do, especially across channels. And you have an interesting take on it, but before going into this take and, and kind of going through your, your steps on how to personalize when you cannot personalize, what are the problems that companies face when they are not personalizing anything throughout the experience? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, even though personalization is very trendy right now and we hear a lot about it, I think there are still a lot of um, companies out there who aren't necessarily thinking of you know their brand experiences in terms of how they can uh, personalize. So I think one of the biggest, I guess, barriers to being really effective with your marketing, if you're not thinking about personalization at all, is really around relevance and meeting consumer needs. So um, personalization, yes, it's trendy, it's a buzzword, but um, really when we're talking about personalization, we're trying to um, talk about how can we deliver the best possible content to users at the right time. So thinking about um, relevancy and context. Right. And even if you would like to personalize uh, the experience based on the context, uh, based on the relevance, based on previous interactions with the brand, you are not necessarily able to do that, right? So there are some channels like SEO, like search engines, where you can't really personalize that much, right? Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. And even, you know, in some programmatic and display networks, there are limitations on how much um, you can personalize based on the platform's editorial policy. But I think SEO is kind of the classic example of uh, a digital marketing channel that really doesn't have any built-in uh, capacity for personalization. Tell us more about this. Like, what does it mean that it doesn't have any capacity like, for personalization, really? Right. So when we say, you know, this SEO isn't oriented in a way that is designed specifically for personalization, we're talking about there aren't any tools available or platforms available right now that will um, help you align, you know, data about your users with your SEO. So because there is no specific user targeting available, you're not able to say, I want to reach this specific user, or this specific subset of users. You're very much limited to, you know, I, when you're developing an SEO strategy, you have to say as a marketer, all right, with this um, piece of content or with this page, I'm going to try and reach people who are looking for, um, you know, this information on this particular topic or people who are searching for this specific keyword or long tail keyword phrase. It's more oriented around keywords and content rather than around user targeting. 
with, you know, ads and really any kind of paid digital ad or with email, you know, you, you are able to target based on the actual individual user or group of users. So that's a functionality that SEO, you know, wasn't designed for. And I wouldn't anticipate any features in that realm um, anytime in the near future. Uh, that's one of the things that people pay for when they're paying for ads is that targeting ability. And so keeping that very separate um, is key. And I think we can also think of uh, organic um, social media posts. So Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, um, we can think of those in a similar way as well. You know, when we are paying for the ads, we have some targeting abilities. We can reach users on a much more granular level, um, whereas uh, with those organic posts, we cannot. Right. And emails really held up as like um, the shining example because you have information like a person's name and you can include those sorts of uh, dynamic content in your marketing that you're sending out. Whereas with SEO, we would never want to include someone's personal information in that, even if we could. Right. And that's the, the major difference. So your answer to this is, is basically when you can't really personalize per se, you can segment, you can do segmentations. So wh what's the difference between personalization and segmentation in, in your world? So within my world, personalization would really be hinging on, you know, that targeting capability and including specific user data at the individual or extremely small group level. Whereas segmentation, how we've traditionally thought of it is just dividing up your target market into different segments. If you're really into inbound, maybe you've created buyer personas or something like that to help you narrow that down a little bit. And I think that using segmentation when you can't use personalization is very helpful, especially when you're thinking of it more in terms of that buyer persona idea where you're really trying to break it down into much smaller, much more targeted groups of people based on a couple of different things, including, you know, where they are in the buying process. So what types of information and what, you know, topics they're looking for help on. So you're looking for the general, I need help with X, Y, or Z, but also, you know, are they looking for help implementing your product or are they looking, you know, just for solutions in general or are they still diagnosing their own problems? Right. And companies, traditional companies, when they use segmentation, they, they tend to focus on, on their own needs, right? Instead of yes. what, what people need. So can you tell me more about this? Yeah. So as a, from a marketing perspective, you have limited resources, you know, a limited amount of content most of the time. And so when we segment, we really think of it in terms of, well, this is kind of how it makes sense to organize our content. But I think segmentation can be much more powerful if rather than trying to just create these segments to create efficiencies on our own end, you know, we really are taking those segments and basing them off of grouping people who have a similar set of needs. And I think typically if we're you know, using it for this purpose, we would end up with a larger number of much smaller segments, if that makes sense, rather than you know, grouping people into prospects into three categories, you would be more likely to have you know, nine. Right. And this is what we're going to discuss now, right? How to, how to actually do mm -hmm. this. So let's say when you work with a new company or you advise people to, to employ this, this strategy, 
what steps do you uh, do you want them to take and perhaps you can maybe uh, mention the steps that you that you go through and then we can dive in into each so when it is time to actually redefine those segments which is really just the starting point in you know developing a semi personalization strategy or you know trying to personalize on these channels where you can't personalize i think the first step is to evaluate if you are using personalization on any other channels now some Like you said, I think there are a lot of uh, brands out there that are doing personalization and maybe uh, could be could stand to be doing a little bit more, um, you know, doing this segmentation in addition to the personalization that they're using on other channels can be a great way to um, help create a more uniform user experience across the board. Um, but if you, even if you're not doing any personalization on other channels, it's just helpful to you know understand that that's where you're at and decide. Well, are we going to take the first step into this? You know, on these channels that are not necessarily aligned to personalization, or are we going to you know start in another area and then deprioritize this? So you actually would audit the channels yeah. that you're currently reusing, right? And so yes, from your experience, exactly. from your experience, what type of channels are traditionally like personalized? I think you mentioned a few like paid ads mm -hmm. and is usually like you can personalize. What other channels can you personalize and what other channels tend to like companies tend to be able to personalize? Yep. So email, I think we've mentioned briefly that tends to be um, the leader in personalization, especially because with surveys and user preference centers, you can Um, ask for a lot of uh, first-party data from your users, and that can be extremely helpful. And you can get um, fairly personalized uh, information about them. Things like, you know, using someone's name can be really powerful in marketing, and email tends to be uh, an appropriate channel for doing that. It's not in one of those channels where if you see your name or if you see something very personalized, you don't think, wow, that's so creepy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that we, that consumers have really come to expect. So, It has a little bit less of that wow factor, but, you know, it also isn't jarring to people. Kind of at the second level is then when we're talking about um, things like paid social and then to a lesser, to a slightly lesser extent, paid ads with paid social, you're seeing a lot more personalization options and, you know, users are seeing it in a fairly personal context as well. So again, there's a level of expectation there that they will be seeing something that is tailored specifically for them. So whether that's through remarketing or using other tactics, I think that is very common. And then we see, of course, with display ads, the trend has been for some time to leverage that for remarketing. With banner blindness and low click-through rates, remarketing and having that personalized touch really can help improve performance on those channels. Okay. And so that's that's the, the personalized side. And then on the non-personalizable mm -hmm. type of side, you have SEO. Mm -hmm. uh, what else do you have? On the non-personalized side, I would say probably the most closely aligned personalization would be um, organic social. So your Facebook page, Instagram, depending on your business, you might be using Pinterest or LinkedIn. Again, those would be areas where you don't have those targeting capabilities, you don't have any really well-defined way to uh, personalize content or personalize the distribution of that content. However, you're still showing up in, in a channel where people are, again, expecting a certain level of personalization. They are, um, you know, really anticipating that 
there will be some level of it. Right. And then I think SEO would kind of represent the least um, able to be personalized um, in terms of channels. It's very much um, expected that you are, you know, having a certain level of user privacy when you're searching. You are expecting that, you know, you're going to get a fairly standardized answer to your question or standardized content related to the topic that you're searching for. So SEO and search ads definitely are kind of representing the least natural um, path to personalization and where we have to work the hardest to, you know, leverage the segmentation to get the people something that is as specific as possible and as relevant as possible for them. So let's take the example of a company that is using the channels that they can personalize pretty well, right? So they're using paid ads pretty well and they're personalizing it enough and they're targeting the right mm -hmm. people. But for those, uh, for those other channels, like in particular SEO or social, uh, in general, it's, it's obviously they can't personalize that much. And so we, we're mm -hmm. going to use segmentation instead. So what's, what is the first step towards trying to show, as you said, something specific to the context of the, of the, the people seeing it? How do you go from, nothing is personalized from this this channel to landing on in an experience that feels like actually i can pick my own my own adventure in a sense and i can i can mm -hmm. you know select what i want and it feels like they they get me mm -hmm. yeah that's a great question um for most brands that are you know using personalization to some extent i would definitely recommend that they you know take a look at messaging that they are receiving from their users, as well as keyword search data, and grouping the topics or the keywords that you're seeing regularly based on that information. So for the, and this is where I think a lot of people get tripped up when they're divide when they're creating their segments. They're looking at um, the content that they already have and the content groupings that they already have and trying to match the segments to those existing content groups for the purposes of this type of segmentation where the focus is not on efficiency but is on helping get better information to users. You kind of want to take the opposite approach and lead with the data that you have about what people are searching for, what people are responding to, and developing your segments out of that and grouping the types of questions that people have out of that information. So taking a very data-driven, user-first approach, and then, you know, segmenting out from there. Okay. So how do we do that in, in practical terms? I suppose you need mm -hmm. to use some sort of a, an SEO tool to gather this information or like, yeah. And maybe you can take an example from a client you work with or like mm -hmm. a fictional example, whatever else you feel comfortable with to give an actual, you know, practical way to do this. So I think one of the best tools that we have out there would be just using Google Search Console, which will allow you to see what people are searching for when your site actually appears in search results. So let me, um, can you just define what it is just briefly for people who might mm -hmm. not know what it is? So Google Search Console, also known as Google Webmaster Tools, for those who don't know, is a free tool from Google. All you need to do is verify that you own a website and they will provide some basic data things like how many uh, clicks or how many impressions you're getting for different keywords. And those keywords are things that people are searching for on Google. Right. And so it shows you the number of impressions. So the, the, mm -hmm. the number of times your website or your page shows up. 
And then it also shows you the number of clicks it gets and the, the average position, right? Yes, an average position, correct. And this is data that you get for free, and this is organic data, meaning it's not paid. It's like people searching organically, clicking on your results that are organic or mm -hmm. competitors. I mean, other organic results, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. All right. So, so sorry to uh, to cut you in your explanation. So let's say, as you said, you're you're using Google Search Console, and what are you looking for then? So from there, what I typically uh, do myself is, you know, organize that uh, data, usually starting with the most popular keywords and then, you know, sorting down to some of those keywords. You know, if only one or two people are searching for them and you and it's a site with, you know, millions of page views, those are things that you don't necessarily need to prioritize right away. So just developing a large enough data set uh, where you're going to feel comfortable with doing a little bit of analysis on it. So that'll really depend on your business. For some brands, uh, they need to use all the data that's in Search Console, and that's fine. And some prefer to, you know, really focus on their top, you know, 1,000 keywords. Again, really depends on what your specific needs are and what your content capabilities are as well. So sorting that out and deciding what the data set you're going to be evaluating is, is really, really important. And if you're going to be pulling search data from other places, or if you're going to include, you know, any other type of data in your analysis, you would want to define that now as well. So if you are getting, if you have, you know, customer support data and you're able to see, well, this is what our customers are asking about our product after they've actually already signed on, sometimes you can glean really helpful information from there as well. But you want to get to a point where you have, you know, a set of user-generated search terms, whether they are, you know, searching internally on your website, whether they're searching on Google, which is where Google Search Console comes in. And that's where I would say the bulk of, for most brands, the bulk of the information that they're going to be using is coming from Google Search Console. And this is an interesting point you're making and um, mm -hmm. about the user-generated keyword. Cause, and I make this point often because I think sometimes we forget about it. The SEO data we get from Google Search Console or other SEO tools is actually based on actual people searching for stuff, right? It's, mm -hmm. And it feels sometimes like, you know, we, we all work behind a screen and, and we are far removed from the actual people searching. But those are actually pe actual people thinking of something, searching for something. And so it is user-generated, user user-first. It's really based on what people think, right? And mm -hmm. so, as you mentioned, so search engines is a place where people search. But as you said as well, it also might be uh, searches from your help documentation, could be searches from directly your websites in the search bar. Uh, are there any other places that are interesting to mention where people search for stuff mm -hmm. where you can get data or is this pretty much it? I would say the for most brands, the majority of information that's very readily accessible is going to come from those places. However, uh, you could also potentially scrape your social profiles for comments that people are making. Again, there will probably be um, a lot of comments that aren't looking for specific information. So again, not necessarily right for every brand, but um, you could definitely get some good insights. Although it's a little bit more of a labor-intensive process, um, you know, you may need to build a tool or um, come up with a way to collect that data in an organized fashion. But if you can do that, that can be another area where you can get that type of information. Again, it's coming straight out of the customer's mouth and it's not just 
what your marketing team thinks or assumes you know people are searching for yeah and you're making a great point i guess in the spirit of prioritization and focus it's fair to say that if you have a website already you are likely mm -hmm. to show up in google and therefore google search console is probably the best place to get started right but i suppose that what yep. we're going to talk about in the next few minutes is going to be relevant whatever sources you're taking uh yep. you're using for what people are searching for mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So we would export all of those results, like number of clicks mm -hmm. per page, number of impressions per page of Google Search Console. But then how do you make sense of it? And again, mm -hmm. in the spirit of prioritization and focus, um, I suppose that focusing on the 20%, roughly 20% of results that lead to 80% of the clicks is probably a mm -hmm. good rule of thumb. Yes, in general, very good rule of thumb. Um, the only time I would suggest something alternative would be if you are a brand that does not have a particularly strong online presence or you're in a market where there are few, uh, very few searches, you know, and you'll really know this when you see this. If you have very few keywords, if you have less than a thousand keywords in Search Console, you should probably be taking a look at all of them. Right. Okay. So we have all of them. How do you... So you, you saw them out by clicks, number of clicks, or do you have any, any other way to, to, to select them, to, prioritize, to mm -hmm. prioritize them? You can also um, search by impressions, sort by impressions as well. You know, I generally don't recommend going by click-through rate or average position, which are both, you know, again, for the purposes of today, available in Search Console, tip just because they don't, those metrics don't take into account volume at all. So you might end up with, your lowest volume keywords and focusing on those, which is not the right area um, to be focusing on. Okay. So from there, you know, that is, you know, sorting by your clicks and impressions is one uh, great way to evaluate it. But once you have that data set in place, it's really time to take the next step and start grouping things together. And I think you've kind of alluded to this a little bit. That's really... Um, one of the more difficult parts of this. So, you know, using something like an engram in Excel, which is going to allow you to see how many times a particular word is used in the data set, something like that can be very helpful. You know, you can use similar analyses, even in something as simple as an Excel or in, as an Excel file or in a Google sheet, you are able to look at the frequency of individual keywords or keyword pairs or keyword phrases. So that's when you're really able to start to see more clear trends emerging. And when we talk about grouping here, we are really trying to group by overall topic. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have 10 keywords uh, and you own a plumbing business. You have a lot about, that's probably the worst example because I know no no specific keywords that people research for in the plumbing. But anyway, what, you, what you're what talking about is, let's say you have like plumbing rates, plumbing pricing, plumbing prices, plumbing, all of that. It's likely that you want to kind of group them under the same topic of pricing or like prices, yeah. right? And yeah, exactly. uh, so you're talking about an n-gram analyzer, which is a, a, a thing that basically enables you, as you say, to, to look at the number of times a specific word or specific two words or specific three words are, appear in a list of, mm -hmm. of things. How do you, once you've exported those results in Excel, 
what tool are you using to like for ngram analyzer what typically do you like to use if anything so i typically just build something custom in excel but there are online ngram analyzers where you can use it in a uh, browser ui and just copy and paste your information in there um there are a few different ones out there i would just caution everyone you know if it's something that is very sensitive information For the most part, Google does tend to strip personally identifiable information out of all those search terms. So if you're seeing it, it shouldn't have anything too sensitive in there. That would be the only thing that I would be careful with. Yeah. So if you Google Ingram Analyzer, you have like plenty uh, for free and you just plunk the, the entire data set in there. It's going to return a list of results and it's going to return the top words mentioned, mm -hmm. the top two words mentioned, the top three words. And you can start mm -hmm. looking. Uh, but I don't think any machines can replace your, our job anyway in the near future when it comes to actually going through the list and grouping things together. Uh, it, it, mm -hmm. it takes, it takes some experience to group topics together, right? And to, to see actually those terms are very close together in terms of, uh, semantic, but in terms of meaning, that could be very different. Uh, I'm just going to give a quick example uh, before I let you continue on the steps. For example, website analytics and website analysis, right? So those two terms are super close to each other when it's a, in terms of semantic. But when you Google those two results, one of them is really going to be about the concept of website analytics and how to measure site traffic. A lot of tools, website analysis will be more the concept of analyzing your website from a speed perspective, SEO, image size. I mean, plenty of stuff. And even though, so even though those two words are super close to each other, it doesn't necessarily mean you should group them together. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. And on the flip side, um, you know, one of the key things as you're grouping together is determining what those synonyms are. And right now, from an automated perspe perspective, there are very few, if any, tools out there that can do that effectively. So a lot of the purpose of uh, collecting your data and, you know, displaying it in these types of formats is to enable a marketer themselves um, to actually do that kind of human analysis um, as easily and as quickly as possible. Because when you're working with a data set that's very large, um, you know, certainly you could have someone go through and manually look at every single, you know, keyword, but that is time consuming and not the most efficient way to do things. So it's really about prepping that data and getting it into a format that is very um, easy to use. So, you know, if you're working with a very small data set, something like a word cloud and can be helpful in referring back to um, your original data set just to get, um, you know, metrics alongside of there. But um, yeah, that's the human element for now is critical in grouping these topics together. So what's the end result from a list of keywords that you've exported with a bunch of data to What is it, a list of topic? How do you like to, to transform this data? Mm -hmm. Yep. So for me and for most of my clients, what's most helpful is dividing it up on a couple different, I, I guess, areas. The first one would be, like you had mentioned, the topic. So, you know, if you're looking for plumbing, you might be looking for plumbing pricing. You might be looking for plumbing services. And I'm trying to think of a third thing you might be looking for. Yeah, it's the worst pricing, example. Services and then maybe location right. as well, just for the purposes of this. And then you would then also want to categorize things on the other axis of, for most businesses, where someone is at in the buying process. So uh -huh. again, are they 
uh, very early in the process? Are they very late in the process? Are they in that awareness phase? Are they in that interest phase? Or are they in that, um, you know, desire phase or action phase? Um, and, and making sure we're breaking that down that way. So what phases um, do you like to use? Because that is super critical. So what phases uh, do, you, do you recommend people to use for this in the process? Mm -hmm. So typically, I do recommend that people use whatever they are already using overall. So if the overall marketing department has this list of phases, I think it can be helpful just to align with that because the area where the user-generated content is really driving things um, is still going to be on that topics axis, if you will. Right. So it's still, I would say, on the marketer side to draw those lines in the sand of, well, we know that these people are you know, roughly in aware the awareness phase or again, you know, whatever uh, the company or brand is already using. I think that tends to be the most helpful and also it facilitates the most alignment with other channels. And that's going to be really critical for the success of these types of marketing efforts. And, and I suppose if you're not too sure about what stage Uh, a particular topic or particular keyword is uh, a good thing to do is to Google it and see what other results come up. If all the results are like landing pages that ask for a sale, then you know mm -hmm. it's it's likely to be in the bottom of the of the funnel. If it's more like informational blog posts and, and whatnot, then it might be a bit higher. It's difficult sometimes to know, but do you have a few words that in the for example in the software business where you know uh, people are, are likely to buy? I mean the words like buy, uh, try, uh, software, uh, and trial and that kind of stuff are, are kind mm -hmm. of implying a buying intent, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's another way. And then a, a small tip as well, I don't know if you wanted to mention it, is to make sure that the keyword or the topic has some uh, weight in terms of can you generate money out of it? Look at the average uh, pay-per-click uh, value That it's, mm -hmm. uh, that it's linked to. So you can't really get that from Search Console, but any SEO tools like Href or Moz provide you this information. So if you have a keyword that is with a, an average pay-per-click of, I don't know, $20 or $50, you know that people are willing to bid that much money for it. It must hold some value. While in the contrary, if you have something that is worth nothing, no one really bid for it, you know it's probably likely to be something quite high in the funnel. Yeah, that's totally true. The only caveat I would say is to make sure you're gut checking and making sure it's a keyword that isn't just making money for other people's businesses. Something It's something that would be profitable for you as well. But, you know, I think that's just a basic gut check. Right. In general, so, you're right. More expensive. It's, wor it's genuinely worth that to someone else in the market. Might be worth that for your business as well. So we now have a, a list of topics keywords related to this topic, and then we have stages for each, right? Mm -hmm. So what do we do with this? So from there, you want to make sure that you're double checking up against the um, you know, numbers that you have in your raw data, making sure that each of those segments, that cross-section of uh, you know, someone who's looking for prices and is ready to buy, you know, making sure that you have enough, enough interest in that area Um, to merit making something um, specifically for that segment, um, you know, that's going to be the next step. So again, that gut check to make sure, yes, you know, there wasn't an error on our end. You know, we really, this really is a segment of our market that we can try and reach with a somewhat 
uh, personalized message because we're going to use this kind of hyper uh, segmentation, this more detailed segmentation. So once that's in place, it really becomes time to make decisions about how you're going to reach people with that segmented message and how you're going to revise your messaging that you already have. So for some brands, this is going to mean some of those bigger chunks of content are going to be need to, are going to need to be broken up. You may need to assess the information architecture on your site. Um, you know, if you're, you know, leveraging these organic social or this SEO um, segmentation, you know, you want to make sure you're driving people to a resource that is tailored to them and doesn't have, you know, a lot of additional information that they don't need. You may take this to a content marketing team and identify some gaps that you might have. You know, the execution of the messaging side is, again, extremely critical in ensuring the success here. So making sure that you have um, some coverage on all those areas is critical. Right. And so how does it look like then when it comes to 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 executing on those segments that you pick. Um, what do you advise to do, uh, depending on, I don't know, there might be a few scenarios here, but how do you then turn those segments you have in the spreadsheet into things that generate business for you? Yeah, absolutely. So what I do typically recommend starting with is to um, prioritize the segments that you have. So you may be able to you know, map this out to actual revenue would be the ideal situation. And that's usually easiest for someone who has an online business or has a way of clearly tracking online users back to actual sales. Can be a little bit more tricky if you are, you know, let's say if you're a plumber, sometimes that can be a little bit harder because someone's finding you online, reaching out with a phone call, it can be a little bit trickier. But you want to, to the best of your ability, estimate out what the value of each of those segments are and work backwards from there. So starting with the most, um, you know, revenue driving, most profitable segments and working your way down that list. Because, you know, again, you're going to want to try and reach as many as possible, but you need to prioritize first. So once you've prioritized, then you're trying to map out your existing content um, to these segments. And this is where you really need to be somewhat ruthless Again, this is kind of where segmentation goes a little bit um, awry sometimes because you want to really force some of your existing content into, you know, these new segments that you've made. And sometimes it genuinely is not a perfect fit. Sometimes you do need to create something new or revise what you already have um, in order to actually deliver. So you have the topic, you know um, a little bit about the context of whether they're, you know, later in the buying funnel, early in the buying funnel, and you can create something more tailored than what you already have. And I think that's where you can really get some benefits out of that. Okay. And how does it look like in in real life? And perhaps you can give me an example of of how to execute on on a a particular segment, the first segment that you, you want to pick. Maybe you can tell me more about this. So if we want to keep going with the example of someone who is looking for plumbing prices, and they are also, you know, ready to buy what you would be looking for on as a piece of content for that site would be something that closely aligns with the keywords that you have seen in that segment. So again, 
there's going to be more than just plumbing prices in there. There will be um, other search terms as well. And so you want to make sure you're keeping an eye on those as well. So you would be looking for a, a page or somewhere that you're driving people that has um, information about the prices and a lead form of some sort. Or if you are you know, a plumbing firm that allows people to schedule online, it would be um, a link to schedule service. So that's really what you would be looking for. And a page that doesn't have too much else, you know, especially with pricing pages, we really have a tendency to want to put all of the benefits out there first before we show people prices. And that can be helpful, especially for someone who's a little earlier in the in the buying process. But, um, you know, when you know that people are looking for this specific information, you don't want to put too much in there. You really want to give them what they need and as little else as possible. And likewise, I suppose once, uh, let's say you've identified a core topic and the stage that, you know, it's, it's in, it's like the awareness stage, which is usually people are not, don't even know your business exists and you want to make sure that they do. Right. Mm -hmm. And let's yes. say that your, all of your content is more like trying to push for a sale straight away. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's usually a big no, no, because People are unlikely to take an action straight away. They might take time, depending on your buying cycle. If you're in B2B in particular, it might take a while. So mm -hmm. if you have a page, a landing page with a lead generation form or, or a phone number, and this is pretty much the only thing you give them when they search for a term that is more an awareness play, then you're kind of fucked, right? And so this is what you also talk about when you talk about ruthless, uh, to be, to be ruthless about it, right? So if you say, mm -hmm. hold on a second, the buying stage is awareness only, and we are giving them this landing page and trying to squeeze mm -hmm. every sales possible, that's not going to work. We need to do something else. So let's say maybe per buying stage, we can go through the typical type of content that works well. And, mm -hmm. and, and then, and then, uh, reverse engineer that for, for, for listeners. So for awareness in particular, like let's say you want mm -hmm. people to be aware of your company, what type of things should you show them and should not show them as well? So this is an air awareness. It can be a little bit tricky. You know, like you said, you definitely don't want to be showing someone who is in that awareness stage, just a list of prices and a link to buy and little else. That's certainly not the direction you want to take. In general, higher level benefits oriented content tends to be very helpful. Again, depends very much on the business, but quiz type content or diagnostic type content, um, content that, you know, helps inform the user a little bit about um, the topic at hand. Those kinds of things can be extremely helpful as well. Um, so it doesn't have to all be very bland. Um, it doesn't have to be just branding content. Um, you want branding to be the focus for sure. Um, but there are ways that you can make it a little bit more engaging as well. Yeah, there's a great book about this. I'm sure you've heard of it, The Ask Method, um, mm -hmm. which which is basically just, again, goes back to psychology 101 and how people behave. People want People care about themselves only and they want help about specific things. If they search for something online, it means that they're looking for help somewhere or another. They're looking for information, they're looking for prices, they're looking for something. So they mm -hmm. want to know that they are being given the, the thing that fits their exact situation. Mm -hmm. And that's why you mentioned quizzes. Yep. Uh, it's a way to capture information to self, to make them self-diagnose their issues, the mm -hmm. problems they have so that you can give them the right information. And yes, I would agree. This is usually a very, very good first step, which where you don't ask them for an email or anything like that. You just ask them to, to give mm -hmm. you a bit more information about them, 
the problem they suffer from, who they are, something that you that you care about as a business and that they care about as a as a person. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And you know, again, we talked about we want branding to be the focus, but this uh, with the awareness stage, you do also want to be walking that tightrope of using the language that your users use, but also you know, making sure that you're using language that is brand appropriate as well. So it can be very tricky, but, you know, and I think that that's something that's usually best addressed by a team rather than just an individual marketer, because um, you can introduce a lot of bias in that way. And um, having a little bit more of a group mentality can be helpful. Um, but I think in general, um, from what I've seen, brands tend to be uh, a little bias towards using their own brand language exclusively and not incorporating elements of user language. And I think that's an area where uh, many, many brands can stand to grow. I think you're absolutely, uh, you're being very candid, very nice about those brands. Uh, usually companies really struggle to talk about uh, using a language that they're people, their consumers are actually using. And usually, as you said, it's marketing bullshit, marketing lingo. I mean, you mm -hmm. didn't say marketing bullshit. I'm saying it for you. <laughs> a lot of marketing lingo, a lot of things people don't understand. Well, um, I had Joanna Weeb on the podcast a few, a few months ago, and she, she was saying that the, the best copywriters uh, don't write any content. They just steal it from their customers, right? And that's, mm -hmm. that's what it is, especially, especially in the very top of the funnel when it comes to awareness and brand. Don't start to play like smart and try to be like this company that uses words that nobody uses. Use mm -hmm. what people actually use in terms of words and you are, you will already be five steps ahead of the competition, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So after awareness, we have what? What is usually the stage that you like to, to consider? So typically for me and for my clients, I think interest is usually, you know, the next stage. So you know, they're potentially returning back or they've already had some kind of um, touch with us previously. And so they're actually, you know, willing to consume some more content and that may be on the website, that may be on an organic social post, really can be in a few different areas. And again, this is an area where being willing to revise your messaging is very important and very hard to do. Um, oftentimes it's easier said than done. So, you know, on the interest stage, that's tends to be an area where you can start to introduce a little bit more detailed information about, you know, again, still benefits oriented, but um, you can have a little more detail there. And that generally tends to be a better time to start to introduce things like asking for an email. You know, again, this really varies. So, you know, my clients are all over the place in terms of industry from um, e-commerce in an area where the average buying cycle is only four hours to, you know, higher ed institutions. So it really can be very, very different based on the industry. But in general, you know, I would say that's, that's kind of the area where you're starting to dip your toe, toe into the water of asking for something, um, you know, whether it's an email, whether it's a little bit more of their time to, you know, keep perusing um, information, but it's, you know, again, still needs to be user oriented, um, in the content that you're providing. Uh, so that way they're able to actually get what they need. So usually they need a little more detail, but you know, not as not the type of thing where like we had talked about with, you know, 
plumbing and you're at the bottom of the sales funnel and you're looking for price where you really just need that pricing and a lead form as the primary elements on the page, you're going to need something, again, a little more information, a little more content, but not so bare bones as that. So you're just slightly, you're increasing the commitment a bit more. You're asking them to commit mm -hmm. a bit more towards you as a brand. So maybe for the awareness stage, they've answered a few questions about themselves. They've, they've replied to a quiz or they've, they've viewed a page and then they left. Uh, they've done something small or they viewed a video, a 30 second video. What is the next step, right? You need to think about in terms of incremental next step and not pushing uh, the sale too much, depending on the sales cycle length, as you said, e-commerce, The average uh, uh, a cycle is like four hours compared to maybe in B2B and complex product could take years. So depending on that, you really want to make sure that you that you give them an experience that is in line with that. So you don't want to take too much of your time in e-commerce, but you don't want to uh, force people in B2B either or else you're going to lose mm -hmm. it altogether. Uh, but all of this data, all of this information will be available, is available to you through those keywords that you've mapped, right? You should be able to mm -hmm. see what type of information people are looking for purely based on what they're searching for when it's linked to, to the, each stage of the, of the buying journey. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And that's, that's what you want to use as your primary, you know, guiding arrow, if you will. Um, that's what you want to be following is as closely as possible, what people are actually asking for. Uh, I suppose in this, in this type of, uh, Of, of, of process uh, using FAQs, like frequently asked questions to actually answer the exact mm -hmm. question they're searching for is also a great, a great way to, yes. to give them what they want. Yep, FAQs, very powerful, especially at this stage. And then uh, let's, uh, let's pick the later stage, right? Once, once mm -hmm. they have awareness, interest, they show you commitment, they're ready to buy. Uh, mm -hmm. We are talking about this, 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 this last stage there. What, It's, I think it's the simpler of them all. What typically are you mm -hmm. expected to show here? So again, it can be very different based on um, your industry. What someone, like you said, in a years-long B2B cycle is looking for is going to be very different than if you're in a B2C e-commerce you know, industry. But in general, again, it's, it is going to be mostly fighting against the instinct to kind of throw everything at the user at this stage you know, where this is not necessarily the time to be recapping in detail everything that you've said up to this point. You know, a little summary can be helpful, of, especially if, you know, there's been a lot of information exchanged, but the key there is to be brief. So that's something that tends to come up a lot as people are looking for, you know, just bullet point lists, short and sweet to recap all the information that they've, you know, received thus far information about um, how to move forward with the sales process. So again, you know, when we get to this decision and action stage, um, it's going to look a lot different for an e-com B2C company than, you know, a B2B company, especially one with a long lead time. A lot of times you're going to, this is the point where you're going to be handing over to sales. Um, whereas in B2C, most of the time you're going to be actually um, leading the person through the purchase. Um, so two very different sets of needs. Again, you know, if you expand out into nonprofit or higher ed, those are going to be very different as well. Um, but, you know, a brief summary, information about what those next steps are going to be, whether it's the sale or, um, you know, moving over to uh, the sales professional, et cetera, um, helping them understand what the next steps are. 
Uh, and in this stage, what happens usually is if people are not looking for you to convince them, they are, they are they have convinced themselves. What they want mm -hmm. is just making sure that they made the right decision in their head, right? That mm -hmm. happens quite a lot. So you, as you said, you do want to show them summary because it confirms their own decision that they made the right choice. And then you need to remove everything out of the way and give them what they want. Like if they want to buy something now, please do not push for uh, give them more information or whatever. They just want to buy. Mm -hmm. So make it simple yes. Uh, yes. for them. Right. Okay. So thanks so much, uh, Ashley, for going through all of this uh, with me, this step-by-step. -step. I know you, you have probably a few more stuff to say when it comes to, you know, did it actually work what you've done, reviewing the results and all of that. But I think mm -hmm. we've covered the most important part, which is actually providing the right information uh, to people, depending on what they're searching for, how much they're, how much people, how many people are searching for this, uh, their buying intent and, and all of that. So thanks for, for doing this. So I have a few questions before I let you go. Um, and the first one being, what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years or 50 years? Uh, that is a great question. And, you know, I think it's a little bit biased towards what we've talked about today, but I do think that Text analysis in its many forms, whether it's the engram that we had talked about or, you know, other methods, um, using other uh, tools out there, different methods of uh, data visualization with your data studio and Tableau, things like that. And I think it's going to be really critical over the next 10 years, especially as we're starting to see voice really start to um, gain a lot more traction. So we're going to have a lot more text-based data than we ever have, especially you know, text-based data that is user-generated uh, information. And understanding how to analyze that at scale is going to be really important in the next 10 years. Yeah, I don't think any other guests have, have, uh, have actually said that, uh, gave this answer, which is super interesting. I would agree with you and the, the format and the, at which we are talking right now, the podcast is exploding right now, like voice in general, because yes. people have no time to write anything or to consume written content. I mean, they do, mm -hmm. uh, but they have also more time to to do voice and like doing their commute and whatever. So what you said is makes total sense. And you start seeing then some a lot of solutions out there that enable you to automatically analyze text based on, depending on what you want to know, you know, sentiment analysis, mm -hmm. pattern recognition, like theme and topic recognition. Uh, but usually it gives you a good aid. It helps, but it's, it's, it's far from being perfect. You always need a human to check it, but you can train mm -hmm. those things, right? Um, yes. uh, you can, you can train them to really give you proper answer based on millions of rows of data. So I concur that this is definitely something you want to look at, uh, in the, in the future. Um, what are the top three resources you'd recommend our listeners today? Could be any, anything from books to podcasts to conferences. Mm-hmm. In general or specific to, you know, what we've talked about today? Whatever you feel is kind of the top three. Uh, <laughs> you can make it more specific if you want to, or if you have any, like, book that you always recommend to others, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, you know, I would say that for me personally, um, I found that, you know, learning in a, you know, more hands-on format and in an environment that's in person can be really helpful. And I think um, conferences are so great for that. Um, I, you know, I would specifically um, probably call out uh, the Digital Summit series. There are a lot of them out there. Um, I'll be speaking at one uh, this summer in DC, but they cover a lot of 
um, different topics and it's all very much digitally oriented. But, um, you know, I think it, for someone with a broader marketing focus, it is a great resource. And I always walk away having learned something, you know, totally new, which is great. Um, I also am a big proponent of, um, you know, you reading books that are not necessarily marketing oriented, um, but are, are helpful in, um, understanding either, you know, user psychology or, um, general business. Um, so one of the classics that I've been doing and going through and recommending to a lot of people, um, is called the knowing doing gap, um, which is a great one. I believe it's, um, Harvard university press, um, really excellent, um, and a, a classic. Um, and outside of that, I find that, you know, marketing blogs like marketingland.com, um, searchengineland.com, again, for keeping up to date when things change so quickly and, you know, it's, they have a lot of great content on strategy, but they also have, um, a lot of tactical information that honestly really can help a marketer in their day to day. So being able to stay up on top of, you know, new things that are coming out, I think, for most of us can be really beneficial. And, you know, we don't necessarily have the time to be sifting through, you know, every new piece of information that, you know, Google throws our way about AdWords. So having, um, you know, resources like that that can help uh, sift out the most important uh, information and the most important updates and let you know about them quickly is really helpful. Thanks so much, Ashley. I concur, like all of the stuff you said, I uh, I haven't actually checked, uh, read the book you mentioned. I probably have never heard of it, actually. And so I'm going to ne- this uh, definitely buy it uh, as soon as this conversation is over. But yeah, once again, Ashley, uh, thanks so much for going through this step by step with me, for sharing all of this information. Um, where can listeners connect with you if they have more questions or if they want to know more about you? Yeah, sure. So I, I'm happy to chat. Best way to reach me is either at strategistmarketing.com or feel free to connect with me at, on LinkedIn as well. I tend to be pretty active on there. And so it's Ashley Plack, right? How do you pronounce yes. your last name? How do you yep. write it Plack. down? Plack. P as in Peter, L-A-C-K. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ashley, once again, thanks very much. All right. Thank you so much, Louis. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests and perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing i like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on itunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five-star review it means that more people would be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir.
And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.